This book, Instructions for a Heatwave, um, is a remarkable, remarkable novel, um, and we were very lucky to have it um, at Shoreditch um, Literary Salon um, what, when it was a work in progress three years ago, was it? Something like that? Two? I can't remember now. It was a long time ago, um, and at the time Maggie had it on her computer as a file that was entitled 1976, because um, that's the year um, that it's set. It's also the year um, that I was born, and so the heatwave is something that I don't remember, but remember people talking about. Um, and the, the bit that she read then became a bit in the novel, and it was really exciting for me when I was reading the novel, thinking, where's, where's that bit? Um, and it had not changed a huge amount, although she says she rewrites and rewrites and rewrites. Um, but anyway, she's going to talk um, about that novel and read from it tonight. Please welcome the fantastic Maggie O'Farrell. Thank you very much. I have to say, I've had a new experience here tonight. Um, during the interval, Janice Galloway asked me if I want to go skinny dipping with her. Um, oh, no, I didn't get that invite. But <laughs> I got to, they're quite old. Um, well, it was actually rude than that, but I'm not going to go into the details. Janice can tell you all later. She's going to set up a Facebook page. Um, anyway, <laughs> I'm going to read from my novel, Moving On from Naked Swimming. Um, uh, this is a part, this about, it's about an Irish family living in London in the big 1976 heatwave. And um, this is about the eldest sibling, Michael Francis, meeting his parents-in-law for the first time, who are very English. Um, so you need to bear in mind that you know, the 70s was the sort of low point of uh, Anglo-Irish relations. When he'd first been taken to meet Claire's parents, the thing he'd been most struck by was how nice they all were to each other, how extraordinarily polite and considerate. The parents called each other dearest. At dinner, her mother asked him, if she could trouble him, would he mind awfully passing the butter? <laughs> it had taken him a moment to decode the grammar of this sentence, to grope his, his way along its abstruse semantic loops. The father fetched a scarf, silk, with a pattern of brass padlocks for the mother when she mentioned it was chilly. The brother talked voluntarily about the game of rugby he'd played that day. The parents asked Claire there, as they called her, about her essays, her lectures, the dates of her exams. The food came in China serving dishes, each with its own lid. They helped each other to portions and then seconds. It had amazed him and made him want to laugh. There was no shouting, no swearing, no people flouncing off from the table, no silent brooding, no scramble for your fair share of potatoes. No spoons were thrown. No one picked up the carving knife, held it to their throat and cried, will I kill myself here and now? <laughs> she didn't, <laughs> she didn't think any, he didn't think anyone in his family would be able to identify the vague area of his PhD. Never mind get down a calendar and write the dates and details of his exams. Never mind reel off a list of books that might be useful for him. Never mind fetch those books from their library. He found their inquiries as to what he was studying, how much teaching he did, whether he had enough time to devote to his PhD, induced a feeling of mild panic. He would have preferred them to ignore him so that he could eat as much as possible of the food, to stare around at the oil paintings on the wall, the bay window that opened onto a sweeping lawn, to absorb the revelation that he was sleeping with someone who still addressed her parents as mummy and daddy. <laughs> but they would not give up. How many siblings did he have? What did they do? Where had he grown up? Though his father worked in a bank seemed to satisfy them, but the disclosure that he was going to Ireland over the summer seemed to cause surprise. Michael's parents are Irish, Claire said, and was it his imagination or was there a hint of warning in her voice, a slight wrinkle in the atmosphere? Really? Her father turned his eyes on him, as if searching for some physical manifestation of this. He was seized with an urge to recite a Hail Mary, just to see what they would do. <laughs> I am indeed, he would announce over the artichokes, horrible, inedible spike things they were. I'm a paddy, a Catholic, a mick, a fenian, and I deflowered your daughter. <laughs> yes, he said, instead. From Northern Ireland or Southern Ireland? He struggled for a moment with a desire to correct Claire's father. It's the Republic of Ireland, he wanted to say, not Southern Ireland. The, uh, he swallowed, uh, the South. Ah, oh, but you're not IRA, are you? <laughs> his hand, carrying food to his mouth, stopped. An artichoke leaf hovered in mid-air. A drop of butter fell to the plate. He stared at the man in front of him. You're asking me if I'm in the IRA? Daddy, Claire murmured. The man smiled, a quick, thin smile. No, really, whether you or your family, whether my family's in the IRA. <laughs> Just an inquiry, no offence, intended. 
He had Claire that night at one in the morning on her flowery bedspread, and when he realised he hadn't used a condom, he was glad. He was angrily glad. And the next morning at breakfast, he was still glad as she sat there, irreproachable in a sprigged summer dress on a straight-back chair, helping herself to scrambled eggs and asking her father if she could pass him anything. He was less glad, three weeks later, when she came to tell him that her period hadn't come. Even less glad again when, a month after that, he'd gone home to tell his parents he was getting married. His mother had shot him a quick, assessing look, then sat down at the table. Oh, Michael Francis, she'd whispered, her hand held to her forehead. What? his father said, looking from one to the other. What's the matter? How could you do this to me? What? his father said again. He's knocked someone up, Eagle muttered. Eh? Knock someone up, Dad, she repeated loudly, lolling on the sofa, her flawless 14-year-old limbs sprawling over the arms. Impregnated her, put a bun in the oven, got a girl in trouble, done a... That will do, his father said to her. <laughs> Eva shrugged a shoulder, then eyed her brother, as if with new interest. Is this true? his father said, turning to him. I... He opened his hands. This was not meant to happen, he wanted to say. She wasn't meant to be the one I married. I was going to do my PhD, sleep with everyone I could lay my hands on, and then go to America. This marriage and baby were not part of the plan. <laughs> the wedding's in two weeks. Two weeks? His mother started to cry. In Hampshire. You don't have to come if you don't want to. Oh, Michael Francis, his mother said again. Where in Hampshire? His father asked. Is she Catholic? Eva said, swinging her bare foot, biting a crescent from her biscuit. Their mother gasped. Oh, is she? Is she a Catholic? She glanced across at the sacred heart that hung on the wall. Please tell me she is. <laughs> he cleared his throat, shooting a furious look at Eva. She is not. What is she then? I, I don't know. Um, C of E, I guess, but I don't think it's a very important part of... The mother lurched from the table with a wail. The father slapped his newspaper against his palm. Eva said, apparently to no one, he's gone and knocked up a prod. <laughs> Shut your bloody mouth, Eva, he hissed. Mind your language, his father thundered. This will be the death of me, their mother cried from the bedroom, rattling the bottles of her tranquilizers. You might as well just kill me now. <laughs> Fine, Eva murmured. Who wants to go first? <laughs> Should we oh no, have a wee bit more of that. Be lovely, lovely, lovely. More, more. more. I, don't want to keep I think that was a fairly resounding more. <laughs> I didn't want to keep from your cocktails. I'll read a bit about uh, Aoife. He met there when she's uh, 14. Um, when the book starts, she's grown up. She's in her 20s. Um, and she has run away. Um, yeah, she's run away to New York. Um, and she has spent a lot of her life. Aoife has run away to New York. Um, and she has uh, spent most of her life trying to conceal the fact that she can't read. She is functionally illiterate. Um, but she's managed to hide this from everybody in her life. And um, I mean, she has what we've now. Uh, recognised pretty early on as dyslexia but in London in the 1950s when she was at school nobody knew what it was anyway so this is Aoife she's living in New York and she's working as the assistant for a photographer she can stack up words inside herself but she cannot get these words down her arm through her fingers and out onto a page she doesn't know why this is she suspects that as a baby she crossed paths with a sorcerer who was in a bad mood that day and on seeing her on passing her pram decided to suck this magical ability from her to leave her cast out washed up on the shores of illiteracy and ignorance cursed forever on her first day in the studio, Evelyn had handed her a contract and asked her to check it over, then fill it in. Eva had taken it and laid it on the table, and when Evelyn left the room, Eva had bent over it, one hand held over her left eye. There was a sudden crushing weight in her chest, and it was difficult to draw breath into her lungs. Please, her mind was saying. She wasn't sure to whom. Please, please, let me get through this, just this once. I'll do anything at all. Contract she could recognise right at the top of the page. That was good. Evelyn had said it was a contract. Or did it perhaps say contact? Was there an R there? Eva pressed her left eye hard with the heel of her palm and scanned the now undulating strings of letters that made up the words. Was there an R? And if so, where ought it to be? Before the T, or after the T, or next to the C? And if so, which C? Panic cramming her throat, she told herself to leave contract or contact or whatever the hell it said and looked down the page. And when she did, she knew she was doomed. For the page on the table was crammed with text, impossibly small text, closely printed, words like lines of black ants crawling over the white. 
They clustered and rearranged themselves before her eyes. They dissolved themselves from their linear left-right structure and formed themselves into long, wavering columns, top to bottom. They swayed and flexed like long grasses in a wind. She saw for a moment a V reaching up for an embrace with the empty arms of an H. She noticed an A in proximity to an O, which brought to mind the arrangement of her own name. She caught hold briefly of a collocation of letters that said possibly fraught or maybe taught, but the next moment it was gone. She was fighting down tears, knowing that it was over, that this job, this chance she'd been given, was scuppered like so many before it. And she was weighing up the pros and cons of just walking out when she heard Evelyn coming back along the corridor. If it wasn't aware of the moment in which she made the decision, all she knew was that she was lifting the contract by its corner, up and away, with only the tips of her fingers, as if it radiated some kind of toxic material. She was sliding it into a blue folder, and she was putting the blue folder into a box on top of a filing cabinet. As she came into the room, Evelyn said, All finished with the contract? And because Eva wanted this job, she wanted it so badly. And why shouldn't she have a good job, an interesting job, like other people did? Damn that sorcerer to hell and back. She turned round. She smiled her confidential half-smile. She folded her hands together and said, yes, all done. Thank you. Shall we swap chairs again so that I can say much You're much taller than me. So much business tonight. It's just like live TV. Um, okay, that's so, better, isn't so it? Yeah. Um, so let me say the name so I get it right. Aoife. 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 Irish Eve. Um, and the, the, what, she, what she does just then, I mean, it's in, in that extract is, is, is significant, but not, you know, doesn't seem like the most significant thing in the novel, but actually there's her, her inability to read is it's critical to the story, isn't it? I mean, how much can you tell us about that without giving too much, too much more away? And also, it's the hiding of secrets that's really important because that's also what the father does and the mother. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the family, the Raven family has a kind of disastrous communication. Can everyone hear me? Yeah. yeah. Um, they kind of, I mean, the mother in particular never stops talking, but no, none of them actually manage to tell each other the salient points of their life. They've all got some kind of problem that they're concealing. Um, and Aoife, I don't know, when I was thinking about Aoife as a character before I started writing, I wanted to give her some kind of curse, as I mentioned in that extract. It seems to me that in uh, folk tales, uh, particularly Irish folk tales, which I grew up with, um, the youngest is always the one that bears the brunt of the kind of bad magic. It's always the one that has some kind of uh, it's also one that has to go out into the world to kind of solve the conundrum of the story. And I wanted to give Eva something, and nothing supernatural, um, but something that meant she had to live this life of concealment. Um, and it was very much on my mind while I was writing the book, um, because one of my children was diagnosed with dyslexia while I was writing it. And, uh, you know, it's a, it, was, it was a surprise, because I don't have it in my family. I, I know nothing about it, really. Um, and so I read as much as I could to try and work out how to so tell So when you say it was a surprise, is that because they'd, because they'd hidden it from you, or because... No, no, not at all. It was quite obvious early on. I mean, he's, you know, he's a bright kid, and he loves stories, but... It was really peculiar. He would be five, and then he'd be six, and all his friends could read and write, and he just couldn't do it. And I, you can kind of know, you know, you know, there's something not quite right, something that's not going in, there's some mm. kind of neural processing that isn't isn't happening. Um, so basically, I read every book there was um, on dyslexia because that's the kind of swat I am. <laughs> when I'm faced with a problem, I go to a library and try and sort it out. Um, and it's you know, it's a, it's a very very tiny word for a really complex and varying condition. You know, it affects no two people the same. And actually, his dyslexia is very different from what Eva has. Um, but I think that was my response as a mother. But as a, as a novelist, you're response to that kind of information overload is a bit more abstract. I kept thinking, what if? You know, what if you had this in a time when nobody had ever heard of it, you know, where the diagnosis didn't exist, when nobody knew how to help you, there, weren't, there wasn't learning support, there weren't educational psychologists. There were no human rights, as Janice said earlier. There were no human earlier. rights, exactly. And, uh, you know, I remember people in my childhood in South Wales in the 70s, you know, kids who just never got beyond Janet and John, and they were always at the bottom reading table, and you think, well, did they have it? I mean, it's so common, it's something like 10% of the population are affected. Um, so I, while I was writing the book, I actually um, talked to a woman who was in her 60s, and she was also functionally illiterate, and uh, she'd concealed it from her husband and both her sons all her life. It was astonishing. And she managed to balance the checkbook. She read the kids' stories at night, and she told me how she did it. She said that when she went to the library, she'd get books for the boys, and 
she'd make her husband read them first, and she would hide behind the bedroom door, listening to him, and she'd memorise it. She would memorise the picture book, oh. and then the next night, she could pretend to be doing it, and she'd turn the pages. And it was just, and it was only when she was in a, you know, she'd been married to this guy for 40 years, and she finally admitted him, I can't read, I can't do it. And she was, by the time I met her, she was learning to do it. It was amazing, an amazing story. Um, th so let's talk about some of the other secrets that are concealed without giving too much away about them. It's kind of hard to talk about secrets, but, but it seems to me remarkable that this family of people who think they know so much about each other and are so involved in one another's lives and feel the need to remark on every single aspect of every single thing that happens um, should know so little about one another. Um, but yet, they, yet they, they don't, do they? Well, I think that's the interesting thing about families. I, was quite, I became quite interested in the relationships between grown-up siblings and how those kind of bonds and ordering um, can change, really. I think when you're in your teens and 20s, you think that you're the family you're born into. Um, it's just the way it is, it's just set in stone. But I find getting older, I find that you know, there are certain pressures, you know, marriages, divorces, careers, kids, mortgages, sort of exert um, their influence on you. And that kind of sibling ordering starts to shift. And you know, perhaps younger siblings might suddenly say, actually, you know what, I'm not gonna do what you tell me all the time. I think you know, the families, I think the readings, they know each other so well, that even though I mean, Aoife mm. and her older sister, Monica, who's the middle one, um, haven't spoken in three years yet, all the way through the book before they actually get in the same room together, they're hearing each other's echoes. They're sort of inner voices, pretty much each other's voice. Um, it's weird, yeah. There's not having a conversation without talking to one another yeah. um, and across a great distance. And it's, it's sort of, um, and it's toxic as well, because if they had only just managed to speak to one another sooner, they might have avoided a great deal of pain. But then there'd be no story. Of course, exactly. <laughs> then there wouldn't be a novel. That's why I'm not a novelist. <laughs> I knew there was a reason. If everybody behaved well, there'd be no novels. Exactly. So, speaking of people who didn't behave well, let's talk about the, the absconding father who's a very interesting character in the book um, because he's, he's not there for a very, very large part of it and yet everybody's talking about him and we find out about him through other people. How is that to write, that missing person almost? Well, I want him to be the kind of absent centre of the novel. In fact, the scene I just read, I think is the only bit where he actually directly speaks, apart from the first scene where he walks out to buy a newspaper and doesn't come back. Um, and I've always, been, I've always been really fascinated by those people who go missing on purpose, you mm. know, who will just walk out of their lives or just go out the front door one day, walk down the path and that's it, they're gone. And I met... Um, a retired police, de police detective at a party a couple of years ago when I was still thinking about the book and he told me he'd been specialised in missing persons and so I said to him I've always been interested in this and he just said really casually he said oh the, thing, the interesting thing about that is that when, when there's a heat wave the number of people that do that rises really dramatically really? so in the current weather lots of people are walking out well it was so interesting and it was one of those casual things that and I walked away from the party and I was thinking god that's interesting why would, why would people do that why would that happen and it sort of I think that was the kind of germ of the book the way it started I just immediately got this picture of somebody being with the heat being unbearable as it was in 76 but it's palpable, it's palpable in the book. I mean, there's this moment when you talk about the aphids kind of like hitting the glass and the leaves crisping and the soil being dry, and it's kind of, it's exhausting. I think that's what it seems to me like, if somebody's had enough of the heat and it means they're less able to cope with the other, yeah. with the other stuff that they're kind I of keeping it, I in. I think heat wears down our defences, you know, I think people do strange things in heat waves. It does, you know, I, and I remember the 76 heat wave, it was, I was four at the time, so it kind of forms the bedrock of my earliest memories. And I do have a really clear memory of standing on the back step wearing a sun hat and not much else. We're back to Genesis swimming again. <laughs> <laughs> and just the, the garden being just yellow, because everything was yellow. And I went to the west of Ireland that summer, and the west of Ireland is, it's rained so much that everything is lush and green in all the fields, and, and the whole place was just yellow. It was dry and there no rain at all. Um, we touched on Janice's process a wee bit. I'm very aware that my microphone is like the voice of God, just in case you thought <laughs> I wasn't aware of the fact that my microphone was like, I'm announcing the national lottery. Um, it's you. Um, I couldn't not set much further back from it if I tried. I'm like, ah, ah. Um, it's because it's, 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 it's we, we turned it up for Maggie before I saw it. See, it's so much, so much looking behind the Wizard of Oz's screen tonight. I'm sorry, I've got no magic left. Um, we talked a wee bit about Janice's uh, process, i.e. it's not finished yet, but it will be, it will be. Um, tell us a wee bit about, about your writing process, because that's very interesting. God, I wish I knew, actually. My, pro <laughs> my process is a little bit uh, chaotic. And I do have, um, I've got three quite young kids. My youngest has just turned one. So there's not much kind of routine that happens in our house. I mainly write when they're in bed. Um, and if 
you know, it's, it's kind of like a planetary alignment. My oldest kid's at school, my middle child's at nursery, and the baby's having a nap. I can suddenly see a sort of runway. I can see a takeoff you know, opportunity. So yeah, so it doesn't, it's not very uh, organised. But I quite, um, I don't really hold with that whole school of thought that um, every baby costs you a book, or you know, even saying it makes me want to puke. Um, <laughs> I know that's an awful Cyril Connolly quote that says, you know, the enemy of good art is the pram in the hallway. I think it's bollocks, actually. Total bollocks. Met Cressida Connolly, oh, who, who is the baby in the family in the hallway. Yeah, she's yeah, really yeah. Nice yeah. As well. She's lovely. She's, and you're just like, oh god, that's not, that's not an easy one to grow up with. <laughs> no. and I'm going to take some questions from Maggie, so I'm not hawking her through. Is that what I'm I need to do? Now. I need to get pregnant. You need to have babies, David, yeah. and locks it all. Clearly, <laughs> <laughs> that's what I'm doing. Well, more questions for Maggie. You must have them. I know you do. Yes, that lady there. It's okay, Kirsty. Go for it. We went, we went to the same school. Oh, oh, she's a, she's okay. a lot younger than me, obviously. So, what was the relationship when you were at school? Was that a good relationship? She I'm didn't so flush her head down the toilet or anything. I'm okay. so much older than her. You can't see because it's dark. <laughs> Gloss over it. I know the one you mean. Lots of people have asked me about that, mainly men actually, but anyway, that's another story. <laughs> so your question is about hair. Right, this is this may be the one of the best questions. Okay, this, this is the kind of question that could only happen in a salon and it certainly wouldn't be tolerated at the Edinburgh Festival. But I am I am I'm gonna I'm gonna go with I'm gonna go with it and say hair, Maggie. You know, it's funny because I didn't tell you this, but the conversation with Janice was actually about hair. <laughs> hey! I'm not going there. A different kind of hair, but well, we won't go there. Um, <laughs> well, hey, you see, it's nice that you say I've got nice hair, but you see, I think anyone with curly hair, you see, I can see Rachel right there, anyone with curly hair knows that you have to spend an awful lot of time wrestling with it. It's an issue, you know, and you have to, there's a lot of, it needs a lot of attention. Um, so I suppose I do, I think of it, and also, it's, I think, you know, maybe my character is just like wish fulfillment. And, you know, I think in the book, you know, Michael Francis, he talks about how everyone in his family's got really awkward, difficult hair. And one of the things that he notices, I suppose, about Claire is her hair is so complicated, uncomplicated in Anglo-Saxon. It's so kind of blonde <laughs> and untraumatic. Um, so I suppose that's it. I suppose your, your strange obsessions filter into your fiction. Uh, Jan Janice has a question. Is it a question about hair? Is it about pubic hair? I'm not talking about pubic hair. <laughs> Literally. Inside trees, yeah. Oh, yes, you did, that's right, I'd forgotten that. Yeah. You did, didn't and you? And I, would, I was under the impression I was doing the Virginia Woolf thing at the time, which was sending a plumb line down and, and seeing what came up, what came up was there, and I from a plug hole. <laughs> <laughs> and I think today I just worked out what the hell that was, and it's, it's to do with the fact that you, your hair gives you away, your hair is unruly. Yeah. Safe to say, Maggie tends. <laughs> <laughs> My son said to me recently, he said, You haven't gone grey like other mummies. And I said, Darling, I'm never going to go grey. Right. <laughs> never. Yeah. I usually can, though, unless it's up. <laughs> if, if you read um, Swimming Home, Deborah Levy's uh, little uh, short book, yeah. it's actually full of women having weird things with hair. And at one point, she's having a breakfast and she finds a hairball in her cereal. Don't you remember? Oh. It's a really shocking bit in the novel, and you just sort of think, Why has this happened? But hair is kind of matter out of place. Well, um, the last oh, was that a question? Is it about here? No. Okay. 
question because Maggie is, what, 20,000 words into a new book? You should never tell Damien anything. I'm being very, very <laughs> discreet. I haven't told him the rest. I could, though. And um, one thing is, is but like, you know, you, 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 how far do you get into something and you think, oh, actually, I'm going to keep going with it, or do you think I'm going to leave it there and maybe you go back to it or you, or you leave it forever? I mean, how do you know when it's working? It's a very good question. I think it's really hard because I think there's no, there's no absolute answer, not for me anyway. I think every book for me feels really different and everyone, every book comes from a really different place. And actually, it's really difficult to often to pinpoint why or where you where it started. Um, I think it's a bit like that old joke, isn't it, about which, at which point life starts. The midwife says it's when you cut the umbilical cord, and the priest says it's when you're baptised, and the doctor says it's when the sperm hits the... Um, you know, I think there's, there's lots of different arguments about when a book starts. Um, and some books can start, you know, 10, 15 years in the past, and when you actually finally get to write them, I think. Um, but it's funny, yeah, I mean, the, t- the book I'm writing now, I think when you finish a book as well, you kind of go through a bit of a period of grief and mourning, or I do. I think it's a little bit like having a divorce, you know, you've got to kind of need a bit of time on your own before you're ready for somebody new. <laughs> you might have a few kind of, you know, dodgy one-night stands, but then you think, no, no, I really need, to find, <laughs> need to find the right one. I'm not speaking for experience, obviously. Um, <laughs> Maggie's husband is also in the audience. <laughs> he's not, he's gone home. He gone home. The baby's woken up. Oh. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's tricky. It's, I think it's one of those unanswerable questions. And also, you don't really know where it comes from, you know. Um, and actually, the, the book I was writing now, I'd actually planned compl- a completely different book. And it was a historical book. I mean, it was, you know, a really, it was sort of 16th century, so... I've done an awful lot of research of work. I've even got myself one of those little card index boxes, which I love. Um, love stationery. And, uh, and you see now, and then suddenly this other idea, somebody said something really random, which is often a bit like the policeman at the party, it often comes like that. And I suddenly thought, oh my God, that's what I need to be doing, not the other one. Well, it might, I'm hoping so. I've kept the card index, it's put on, I put it on the shelf. <laughs> Um, this seems like a very good place um, to end tonight. I want you to thank Maggie O'Farrell and Janice Galloway and all of you for being here and the staff for watching. Thank you, Janice. Thank you, Maggie. Thank you all. Thank you. Come back in the next two days.